Well, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. I was actually very tempted to just use the name of the sermon that I used last week and call this part two, because it's really a continuation of the same, uh, the same themes, the same principles. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we took away from the passage that we looked at last week, Genesis 37, 1 to 11, was that life needs to be viewed through a specific biblical lens. And that lens takes into account two primary things. Number one is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. The fact that God is sovereign over absolutely everything. And number two, God's goodness unto His own. God's goodness unto His own. If you learn to see life, everything in life, Not just the bad times, but the good times also. Everything in life. Through this lens, man, life is going to make a lot more sense. The world is going to make a lot more sense. And at least one of the things that makes it so hard to see life through this lens, one of the things, there are are probably several factors, but one of those would be the fact that people are not basically good. People are not basically good. I'm not good. You're not good. Your kids aren't good. Nobody is, in the essence of their nature, good. And if you don't accept this as the reality about humanity's condition, it is impossible to make sense of the world. Think about the things that we see day in and day out, which reflect this fact that people are not basically good. And yet, the idea that people are basically good is one of the few things that most people in the world today would actually probably agree on. Talk show hosts say it, right? Political pundits say it. TV show and movie characters all say it. Our kids are taught it in public schools. I mean, even Joel Osteen says it, right? And yet the Bible says none is good. The Bible says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. The Bible says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth. Earlier in our study of Genesis, we read this in chapter 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. People are not basically good. So where does this idea that people are basically good even come from? Well, if you were to get the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and look up the definition of humanism, this is the definition that you'll find. Quote, a system of values and beliefs that is based on the idea that people are basically good and that problems can be solved using reason instead of religion. End quote. That is the very definition of humanism. And if I can just be blunt for a second here, it's also the very antithesis of the gospel. And as such, it's, it's wrong, yes, but it's not only wrong. It is also a satanic doctrine. I know that's a strong word. But when you're talking about something that is so antithetical to the gospel, there is no other word. In fact, that's a nice way to put it. It's satanic. And yet, the reason that most people would agree that people are basically good is because this humanism is the religion of the world. It's the religion of the culture. And 
it's kind of ironic if you think about it for just a second. It's ironic that uh, while denying the usefulness of every religion, uh, secular human, uh, humanism actually has its own doctrine, its own dogma. One of those things being that people are basically good. That's a religious doctrine for secular humanism. So if you affirm the satanic secular humanist doctrine of the goodness, the inherent goodness of people, how do you explain somebody going into a school and shooting up as many people as they can? How do you explain murder? The way that the media sensationalizes absolutely everything that fits in with their humanist agenda. You know, you would think that murder and mass murder is a new phenomenon or something. But it's something that's been happening ever since Genesis chapter 4, when Cain murdered his brother Abel. The truth is that if we could solve all of our problems on our own, we would have done it already. We've had thousands and thousands of years to do something. And things are only getting worse. Where does this idea that we can solve our own problems without God come from? Murder isn't going away. And the reason that murder isn't going away is because the human heart, that is the the nature, the very essence of the nature of humanity, will remain unchanged. Because only God can change a person's heart. Oh, but once you bring God into the equation, oh, you've denied one of the core doctrines of secular humanism. So why is there murder? Because we have this tendency within us to envy and to covet and to hate. That's where murder comes from. That's exactly why Jesus said, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You see, murder is a fruit It's an action that springs forth from the root of anger and covetousness and envy. And so in God's eyes, Jesus is telling us that being angry enough to curse at someone makes you, makes anyone, makes me guilty of murder because when you're that angry, when you're, when you're filled with that much rage, that much hatred, maybe you would kill someone if you thought you could get away with it you are that much more inclined toward doing it. Well, as we continue in our study of of Genesis today, we need to remember how badly Joseph's brothers hate him. In fact, in just the first 11 verses uh, that we looked at last week of chapter 37, we were told three separate times that his brothers hated him. You'd think that Moses was trying to make sure that we don't miss something there. His brothers hated his guts. And so their response when Jacob, when their father made a special coat indicating his favoritism toward Joseph, their response was to hate Joseph even more. And then, just to to kind of pour oil on on the fire, Joseph was given two dreams by God, which indicated that not only did he have his earthly father's favor, but he had his heavenly father's favor as well. And it was after Joseph told his brothers and his his parents, for the second one, about these dreams that we saw that this hatred that the brothers had really hit a boiling point. Beyond that, if if you already have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 37, look what it says in verse 11. 
It says, and his brothers were jealous of him. Now to be jealous means you think there's probably a chance that there's something to these dreams. That's the indication. It tells us that they realized that maybe there really was something to these dreams. And that, this realization that God had favor on Joseph, that stirred up their own hatred because it confronted their selfish ambitions. And I fear that in our day and age, in in a day and age when self-esteem means absolutely everything to most people, that we have no understanding of how dangerous and how desperately wicked selfish ambition is. Let me help you make sense of the social and, and the moral chaos and disorder that we, say, that we see going on in the culture around us and the open practice of wickedness that we see in our culture. Let me help you make sense of that. James 3.16 says this, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In a day when self-esteem means absolutely everything, do you think there's an abundance of selfish ambition? There absolutely is. And so the jealousy that Joseph's brothers were feeling is going to press them to become a bunch of murderous thugs. But the central point of our passage today is that because God is sovereign, we can endure whatever our circumstances in life may be. Because God is sovereign, we can endure. So let's start with Genesis chapter 37, verses 12 to 17. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So first of all, it's interesting to see that, that Jacob still has some flocks in the region of Shechem. He had relocated to Canaan, but he spent a season of his life in Shechem just wanting to kind of blend in with the world, if you remember. But he had relocated to Canaan sometime earlier. And we see now that he, still, he left some flocks behind. He left some, uh, some, some livestock behind in Shechem, where Simeon and Levi had murdered, had gone on a killing spree and murdered all the men of the city. And Jacob had apparently kept Joseph home while the brothers went out to pasture these flocks. At least for a while he kept him home. Maybe because Joseph was almost the youngest, but more likely because Joseph was his favorite son. But Jacob eventually decides to send Joseph to check up on his brothers in Shechem. Verse 14 tells us that Jacob sent Joseph from Hebron to Shechem to pay his brothers a visit. And this would be about a five-day journey. Hebron was about uh, 20 miles south of Jerusalem, and Shechem was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. So 20 and 30, it's about 50 miles. 
So he sends Joseph, his favorite son, on this 50-mile journey. And, and maybe out of stupidity, maybe out of ignorance, he sent Joseph all alone. And there are a couple reasons that this was pretty foolish. First of all, maybe he should have known that Joseph's brothers hated him. That he, should, he should have had some kind of indication that these guys hated his guts. Unless he just didn't pay attention to what was going on in his own household. That's another issue. So, so did Jacob not even realize how much his brothers hated Joseph? I mean, that seems kind of hard to believe. But maybe the brothers kept a lid on their animosity toward Jacob or toward Joseph while they were around their father. But still, Jacob should have been somewhat aware of the hostility that was brewing. Secondly, though, the people of the land hated Jacob, if you remember. The only reason that they didn't rise up against Jacob and his household when his sons murdered all the men of Shechem was because the Lord instilled in their hearts a fear. And so they didn't. So they, they, they kept their hands off of Jacob and his family. So maybe Jacob thinks, you know, I, I can send Joseph out there and, and God will protect him the same way that God protected me. But really, that's kind of testing God, isn't it? And it is never, never a good idea to test God. Either way, this extravagantly dressed young man, he's wearing this coat, right? This extravagantly dressed young man traveling through Canaan was unwise and dangerous for the same reason that it would be really unwise and really dangerous for one of us to get this duffel bag that's got money just like overflowing in it and walk through downtown Seattle in the middle of the night. How many of you guys would love to do that? I mean, that, that would be like the epitome of stupidity, right? That would be like the dumbest idea. Seattle's a dangerous place. But nevertheless, even though he sends Joseph into this very dangerous and very precarious situation, God's faithful. And He gets him there. He provides direction for him once he gets there. The, this man knows that the brothers have moved on to an area called Dothan, which was an, another 14 miles Another 14 miles away. So that puts Joseph a total of 64 miles away from home. Far enough away that nobody from home could come and help if something were to go wrong. Now this region of Dothan, it's, it's kind of interesting because it's only mentioned two times in the Bible. And both times we see God being very active, uh, but in different ways. One of them is right here. But if you look up information on the area, you'll also find out that it was home to Elisha, the prophet. It's interesting to see that the two times that Dothan is mentioned in Scripture, you see two very different expressions of God's benevolent providence unto His own. The first one in this text will be where Joseph cries out, screams out for help, pleading with his brothers, and nobody comes to his rescue. But in the second case, which is found in 2 Kings, the armies of Syria are closing in on Elisha and his servant. And we read this in 2 Kings 6.15, when the servant of the man of God, when Elisha's servant that is, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And then we read about Elisha's response in verse 17. He says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. 
So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's where the title of the movie comes from, Chariots of Fire. He's surrounded, he and his servant are surrounded by God's presence, by the presence of of an army of angels. So Elisha was confident, despite the fact that the situation looked pretty grim, they're surrounded by the Syrian army because he knew that the Lord had sent angel armies to do battle with the Syrians. And the truth is that the same army of angels surrounded Joseph in Dothan too. Nothing was going to happen to Joseph that was outside of God's sovereign ability to control. And we need to understand that as we get deeper and deeper into this story. Because on the surface, it's going to look like there is no providence to be found here. On the surface, from a human level, it's going to look like God is either absent because He's not mentioned, or that He's unaware or that he just doesn't care, or he's unable to stop this great evil from taking place against Joseph. See, our our flesh, our flesh would love to believe that if God is for us, nothing painful can happen to us. Nothing negative can happen to us. There won't be any trials. That's what our flesh wants to believe. Man, the prosperity gospel appeals to our flesh nature so strongly. That's one of the reasons it's so, so dangerous. But that's damnable heresy. But with that said, it's, it's often wiser to pray. This is very important. It's often wiser to pray for the grace and the wisdom and the strength to deal with adversity than it is to pray that the adversity would just go away. You're better off, and if you read Paul's letters, you'll see that this is exactly what he does. You're better off praying for the grace to deal with the adversity. Because that's the way that God shapes us, is by putting us through adversity. And we learn to lean on the grace that God gives us. That doesn't mean that you can't pray for adversity to go away. You can. But make sure that you're also praying for the grace to deal with adversity. Jesus taught His disciples in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, he said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? He says again, John fifteen twenty, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Paul goes on to write to Timothy that everyone who desires to live a life of righteousness in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who here would love to go through life without being persecuted, without being hated, without being maligned? Of course we would love that, right? That would be awesome, we think, in our flesh. But Jesus warns us That if He had to suffer, we too will have to suffer if we will take up our cross and follow Him. And this is why I have such an enormous problem with the old evangelistic strategy that starts out with with telling a person God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now that is a true statement. 
That is a true statement, that God has a wonderful plan for the life of everyone who repents and believes in Christ. That is a true statement. But God's understanding, God's definition of a wonderful life, of a wonderful plan, and the understanding that a pagan who is unregenerate, who is hardened by sin, those two definitions are going to be polar opposites. The unregenerate pagan is thinking that a wonderful plan for his life would be getting a raise. It would be getting a prettier wife or a prettier husband. It would be getting a job promotion. It would be having, having the spouse do exactly what they want, right? Your, your wife isn't nagging you anymore. Your husband is actually doing the chores for once. You know, this, this is a person, this is a, an unregenerate pagan's idea of a wonderful plan. While God's definition for a wonderful plan might mean getting fired from your job or a job demotion or your spouse not doing the things that you expect them to do. Why? Because God would use those situations to teach you godly virtue. To teach you to trust in the Lord more fully and to rely on His grace more completely. Do you see how different these these definitions of wonderful plan are? How did that wonderful plan work out for Peter? He was crucified upside down. How did it work out for James? He was beheaded. The gospel call isn't a call to what the world calls a wonderful life. The gospel call isn't a call to an easy, painless, carefree life. We can, we can want an easy life all, all we want, but not a single one of us should rightfully expect a conflict-free journey to Canaan. God does have a wonderful plan for your life if you are in Christ Jesus. But that wonderful plan is for you to become more like Jesus. And for that to take place, there will be trials. That wonderful plan that God has is very different from the world's concept of a wonderful plan. They call the gospel foolishness. Foolishness. And we call it the wisdom of God. Let's continue. Verses 18 to 24. They, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what becomes what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was... No water in it. So the brothers look up. They're out there pasturing flocks or whatever. And they look up and they see Joseph approaching from afar. How do they recognize him? Unquestionably, it's because of this shiny, glimmery, whatever, this fancy, extravagant coat that he wears. 
And we immediately see that as soon as they see Him, as soon as they lay eyes on Him, this hatred that's just been simmering in their hearts springs into action. And they begin immediately conspiring to murder Him. And they they reveal as they're conspiring exactly what it was that brought them to this point where they hate Him so much, enough to, to kill Him. And that is the dreams. The two dreams that we read about in verses 1 to 11, right? Those stupid, good for nothing, self exalting dreams, you might have heard the brothers say. And their plan is to take him, to take his coat, and to to throw him into a pit or a cistern or or a well. And so the brothers are thinking to themselves, and and they're, they're mocking Joseph as they do it. They're thinking that he can dream all he wants at the bottom of this well. He's not going to be able to do anything about it. Nothing's going to come to pass as long as he is down there. And of course, the one thing that they would have known would happen if he was down there, if he was thrown into a well with no water, is that he would die within a couple days of dehydration or or malnutrition. So their, their hatred, this hatred that's been simmering, that's the root, and now we're seeing the fruit. And that is their plan, their conspiracy to murder Joseph. And that's what they are already. Before they've even done anything, before they've acted upon this plan, they are already murderers. They hate Joseph, and they think that this is a chance to act on this hatred and not get caught. And fortunately, Reuben puts a stop to the plan. He demands that his brothers do not kill him, but just throw him into the pit, shedding no blood, And the text tells us the reason that he comes up with this idea. His idea, his plan, is to rescue Joseph. He plans to save him out of this pit. He probably saw this, I would imagine. He he saw this as a chance to make things right with his father, right? His father is is furious at him. He's going to be furious at him until the day he dies um, after he had this affair with Bilhah. But his words aren't a suggestion. He takes charge here. I appreciate that about Reuben, the fact that he does take charge. The literal translation is, we shall not take his life. He's not giving an opinion. He's giving an imperative command. We shall not take his life. I mean, he's, got some, he's got some oomph to these words. And so when, when Joseph arrives on the scene, the brothers immediately act on their plans. They immediately act on their hatred. They strip Joseph of the robe which designated his earthly father's favor, and they throw him into a pit that has no water. That's a significant detail because if you're in a pit uh, that's got a lot of water, you're going to drown. And if you're in a pit with a little bit of water, you're going to live longer because there's water to sustain you. You'll die sooner of dehydration than starvation. So he's not going to drown, but Reuben isn't going to have a whole lot of time to get him out without his brothers noticing before he dies of dehydration. And this is a picture of mob rule. I mean, these guys, these brothers should know better because they surely know about the God who guided and protected and provided for their father. They should be decent upstanding moral men who live their lives with a constant awareness of God's presence. The problem is, people are not basically good. People are, by nature, evildoers. 
sinners, murderers. These brothers envied Joseph. He not only had their earthly father's favor, but he also had God's favor, as indicated by the dreams. Have you ever thought about what is actually, in a practical sense anyway, what is so wrong with envy? The thing with envy, envy or or, or covetousness, same things, same problems, is that it's really a hateful response to God's sovereign decrees. And thus it's ultimately an expression of hatred toward God. We need to understand that whatever we have to us, whatever we have has been given to us by God's hand. Everything we have, whether it's your children or your spouse or your your home or your car or your job or your money, everything that you have is from God's hand. And what we don't have is what God has sovereignly chosen not to give us in the moment. What we have, we, we do not need, at least not in the moment. And that's not to say that you know, if you don't have any money saved for retirement, you don't need to start saving for retirement. No, Eric will tell you that's pretty foolish not to save for retirement. It's wise to save. Planning ahead is, is wise. The Bible speaks about, about that. But it is to say that for the child of God, right now you have everything that you need for right now. Everything that you have right now is what you need for right now. And there's nothing that you need right now that you do not have right now. If nothing else, if nothing else, because you have Christ, if you are in Christ, you have the promise that God is using every single situation in your life for your good to make you more like Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great preacher of yesteryear, said this of envy. He said, quote, How unfortunate that many are not willing to take the place which God has assigned them in the world. When a man is covetous and envious, he's saying, God, I am not satisfied. You didn't give me what I want. Such a man would dethrone God and redeal the events and possessions of life so that he would be exalted. End quote. So we have to guard our hearts against a lot of things, but one of the things that we need to guard our hearts against is is envy and covetousness. Because those things will prevent you from being content in God's promise of goodness to you in all things. You, You might have that information up here, but you won't be content with it if you have envy, if you're coveting something else. And God has promised that He is working in all things. He's causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And speaking of God, where is God in this passage? What is God doing while Joseph is being beat up, is being abused by his brothers? Where is He now? I mean, we, we can imagine that the brothers would be asking the same questions in a mocking sense, right? Where is your God now? God is not absent here. It it might look like it on the surface because He's not being mentioned, but God is not absent. In fact, this was God's plan for Joseph's life. This is the wonderful plan that God had for Joseph's life. The nine brothers are thinking, you know, this is their idea. 
that this is all on them and that they are going to, to defy God's plan for Joseph's life. Oh no, they're not. Because God had a plan to use the evil intentions that they had within their hearts and He would use those intentions to send Joseph down to Egypt where he would rise to this position of prominence, thus having the authority to provide a safe haven for his brothers when a famine on the land comes. The point here is this. We don't need to envy. We don't need to envy because God is sovereign. If God is sovereign, if you believe that God is sovereign, then you don't need to envy. And even when evil people do evil things, God is still sovereign. And God is still able to use the evil intentions and the sinful actions of mankind to accomplish His good and sovereign purposes. So how does this relate to to us? How does this relate to, to our lives? Well, it means that you can just go ahead and trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understandings because our own understandings are very short-sighted. Our own understandings are tainted by sin. We can just trust in the Lord. And, and it means that our joy cannot and must not be contingent upon our conditions or our circumstances. That's called happiness. That's not joy. Joy and happiness are not the same. And we are called to have a life of joy. Joyful contentedness. Because God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over everything, no matter how difficult your current circumstances or any circumstances that you face might be. Let's continue. Verses 25 to 28. Then they, the brothers, sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. You get a little bit of a deeper sense of the wickedness in the hearts of the brothers here. These guys are calloused. They are evil. They are absolutely wicked. I mean, what kind of a person can do this to their brother? And while he's he's crying out for help, you sit there and you have a meal and just listen to it. Probably the food that Joseph had brought for them on this journey from home. And as they're eating, this caravan of Ishmaelites, non-covenant people, they're heading down to Egypt and they pass by. And suddenly Judah comes up with a plan to sell Joseph. And I do think that we can give Judah a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here because he does seem to be having second thoughts about murdering his brother. But here's the thing. In his heart, it's already done. Right? He's changed his mind now. But if they had, if Reuben hadn't intervened and they had just gone ahead with their plan and killed him, it would be too late. So Judah does recognize that Joseph is their own flesh and blood and, and that it would be more profitable for them to sell 
Joseph off than to just kill him. So the brothers listen. <clears throat> they consider what, uh, what Judah's plan is. And it seems reasonable. And I mean, it's going to kill two birds with one stone, right? They're going to get rid of Joseph and they're going to make a little bit of money doing so. So when this, this group of non-covenant people, this, this group of Ishmaelites passes by, they sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. Not a lot of money, by the way. But we should notice a change in the script here. There's been a subtle change. Moses has turned the spotlight off of Joseph, and he's focused now primarily on the brothers. And it looks like Joseph, for the first time in this chapter, is actually being quiet. It looks like he's actually keeping his mouth shut. Well, yes and no. He did beg and plead for his life, but how much we don't know. What we do know is that 20 years later, when his brothers have to go down to Egypt to escape the famine, and they encounter Joseph down there, they'll say this in chapter 42, verse 21. They'll say, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why distress has come upon us. So he did say something. Joseph was a hated man, but God's grace was upon him. And that caused two things. Number one, it made him very different from his brothers. He didn't fit in with his brothers. And number two, that difference provoked a deep animosity, a deep hatred between his brothers and him. There's no indication, there's never an indication that he hated his brothers. There's only an indication that his brothers hated his guts. And there's no question about it. A person who has God's grace upon them should be noticeably different from the world in every circumstance, whether it's a good circumstance or, or an, a negative circumstance. It, it should give us a humble spirit when things are good because we recognize that God is sovereign and that any good circumstance is from His hand. And it should also give us a confidence and a sense of assurance when things aren't good. If God has given you the grace to be His, He's given you the grace to be different from the world around you. If you don't fit in with the world around you, if you, if you don't look just like the world when they celebrate or when they mourn, if you don't fit in with the world in those ways, that is all the grace of God. And know that Jesus knew exactly what He was talking about. He was right. The world will hate you if you are different. If you're as different as you should be, the world will hate you because they hate Him. Just like the brothers hated Joseph. What you have to do, what we have to do, is guard our hearts against things like envy and covetousness because the fruit of that root is bitter. And once you act on those feelings, once you have those feelings, it's only a short step away from acting on them. And once you act on them, your testimony before the world will either be diminished or it'll be destroyed. So guard your heart. Guard your heart against these types of things. Guard your heart against any root of bitterness. And trust God to care for you, even when life isn't fair, even when life doesn't seem to make sense, even when others treat you unjustly. God will deal with them. Do you have confidence in that? That when somebody does something wrong to you, when somebody sins against you, do you have confidence in the fact that God is going to deal with them? 
Never avenge yourselves, Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 19. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And God would ultimately deal with Joseph's brothers. But for now, they're 20 shekels richer and one brother poorer. Let's continue, verses 29 to 36. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we see two people mourning here, perhaps for different reasons. As Reuben returns, he learns about what's happened. We don't know where he went or what he was doing, but he wasn't there when Joseph got sold. And when he learns about it, he mourns greatly. And I think he mourns probably for two reasons. Number one, I think he really did want to save Joseph. Maybe he wanted to make things right with his dad by saving Joseph. But secondly, I imagine that he fears the increased wrath of Jacob if he goes home without Joseph. But, but the brothers continue to conspire. Now they act on this lie that they, that they think of to, to cover their tracks. They take Joseph's coat and they dip it in goat's blood and they brought it to Jacob. Isn't that kind of ironic? Given the fact that Jacob used a goat to fool his own father? It's kind of come around on him. And as I've said so many times, sin leads to sin. Sin leads to sin. The sin of of lying to their father. The only reason that was necessary is because they were guilty of the sin of murdering in their hearts their brother. Sin will always take you further than you initially think it's going to take you. It will always take you further. And so Reuben mourns. Jacob also mourns greatly as he realizes what all this means. And he refuses to be comforted. He says he's going to die in mourning. He's going to go to the grave with this burden on his heart. He weeps bitterly for Joseph. Meanwhile, we see that God's plan is in full effect. It's in full swing as the Midianites sell Joseph to Potiphar. And I'm sure that these guys turned to profit since 20 shekels isn't really all that much. I'm sure that they sold him for more than 20 shekels, but we don't know how much they sold him for. From a human perspective, though, things could not have gone more wrong for Joseph. And yet, Scripture never records him complaining about his circumstances. In fact, years later, he would actually be eager to be reconciled to his brothers in what has to be one of the most moving scenes 
in all of Scripture. But again, we're reminded. As we consider the events that have taken place here, we're reminded that people are not basically good. We're reminded that we live in an evil, sinful, fallen world. The things that we see taking place today in this chapter, in this passage, aren't really all that different from the things that we see taking place in our culture all around us almost every day, are they? I mean, they didn't have guns back then. They didn't need guns, right? I mean, an empty well did the trick. An empty well was was exactly what they needed. I mean, if this took place in our world today, maybe they'd have an entire political movement to, to ban wells. I don't know. But the fact is, the human heart doesn't need a gun or a knife or fill in the blank with an object, with an inanimate object. It doesn't need that thing to kill somebody. It doesn't. All you need is the wickedness of the heart. So when things go wrong in your life, and things will appear to be going wrong at some point in your life if they haven't already, what lens are you going to use to look at that situation? So you need to practice with the good things seeing life through the lens of God's sovereignty and goodness. Because if you're not able to see the good things through that lens, if you're waiting for a time when things go wrong, you're not going to know how to use that lens to see your situation. But when that happens, when something goes wrong, what's your response going to be? Is it going to be anger? Is it going to be a desire to get revenge? Are you going to lash out? Will it be to envy somebody who is not in your position? Or will you see your circumstances correctly through the lens of God's sovereign goodness unto you. Now we could talk all day about how evil these brothers are, right? They are wicked. Man, they deserve God's wrath, don't they? These guys are evil. And without a question, what they did was the epitome of wickedness. But the one thing that should give us a reason to stop and to reflect is the realization that we're all guilty of the same things. Every single one of us has probably been angry enough to curse somebody. Worse than that, however, not a single one of us is any different from the mob that shouted, crucify Him, when Jesus stood trial before Pilate. And the truth is that every single one of us, by nature, from the moment we were conceived, Every single one of us is a lawbreaker. Paul goes through this extensive list of sinners at the end of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, talking about man turning away from God and worshiping the creature instead of the Creator, right? And, and God hands these vile sinners over to their sins. It says, starting in verse 26, It says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Talking about homosexuality. Verse 27, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We've got to be careful here. Let's keep going. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this is talking about all of humanity now, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Should Joseph's brothers have done what they did? Nope. Nope. So let's keep going. Let's apply this to them. Verse 29, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. And before we get to verse 30, we can say, yeah, these guys are are worthy of God's wrath. These guys are, are horrible people, right? Verse 30, Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Oh yeah, these guys, these guys deserve God's wrath. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Get them, God, right? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And we're thinking, amen. But let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Every single one of us is worthy of God's wrath. Every single one of us is a lawbreaker. Every single one of us, apart from God's grace, has every sin here on us. But the alternative is for God to put those sins on Christ in your place. Every one of us is a lawbreaker. That's a reality that will render the humanist, the secular humanist, incapable of making sense of the world when people do evil things. That's, what, that's, that's the reality of the fact. People are evil. And that's what those who think that banning guns will make society better fail to realize. A gun is just an inanimate object, right? What makes an inanimate object dangerous? It has to be something outside or other than that object, right? No gun has ever aimed itself and fired at a person. And so in that sense, a gun is no more dangerous than any other inanimate object. Can you kill somebody with a chair, with a book, with your bare hands? Of course you can. What turns anything into a weapon is the wicked motive within the heart of the person who intended to use it. And this is something that every single person is guilty of. This is a sin that is on every single person. Every single one of us is a lawbreaker, and every single one of us has only earned God's wrath. Our need for grace is so great. Our need for every single one of these sins to be removed from us is so great. And the only way is to repent and to believe in Christ who took our sins upon Himself and bore the wrath that we deserved for those sins. And in exchange, He imputed His perfect righteousness unto us, cleansing us of all these sins that we just looked at. It's the only way. It's the only way. So Joseph's life teaches us that we're not good. That people aren't basically good. It also teaches us that life is is often very, very unfair. But it also teaches us that God is sovereign. And that God is good. And that God is working in all things for His glory and for our good. That good being not comfort, necessarily, 
but for our growth in Christ's likeness. God is never absent, friends. God is never absent. And He's never unaware of what's going on. He's never unable to fix what's going on. He's never ambivalent. It's never the case that He doesn't care about what's going on. From a human perspective, it may look that way. From a human perspective, it may look like evil is prevailing in our world. But from God's perspective, everything's going according to plan. Everything. Everything. And you need to see your life through that lens. So may we face our own trials with confidence in this truth. And because we have had God's grace lavished upon us, we can endure any circumstance for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your grace. Not only for the grace that forgives us, not only for the grace that makes us right with You, cleansing this huge list of sins from us. But we thank You that Your grace also sustains us through the hardest times of life. Oh Father, we confess to You in the silence of our hearts that this list in Romans 1 describes every single one of us. And we also confess to You that our flesh is so inclined to covet and to envy and to complain when things don't go our way. Thank You for forgiving us of that sin of discontentedness with what You've given us. And we pray, Lord, that You would teach us to see life through this lens, that we would see Your sovereignty and that we would see Your goodness, whether things are going well for us or whether things are not going well for us. We pray, Lord, for a faith that is just unshakable regardless of circumstances. And we know that you are causing all things to work together to make our faith like that. So we pray not that our will be done, but that your will be done. For the glory of Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcasts.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.